0: I'm Bonnie Glaser, director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In early December, Chinese President Xi Jinping traveled to Saudi Arabia for a three-day trip, his first to the country since 2016. Xi promised to usher in a new era of China-Saudi relations. He met with King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and penned a strategic partnership agreement with the kingdom. The two countries signed approximately $50 billion of investment agreements in green energy, housing, logistics, and other sectors. Xi Jinping also held a summit with six Gulf Cooperation Council countries and a China-Arab State Summit with leaders from 21 countries of the Arab League. To discuss Xi's trip and China's policy toward the Middle East and North Africa, I'm delighted to have as my guest today Dr. Jonathan Fulton, who is an assistant professor of political science at Syed University in Abu Dhabi and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. He's also host of the China Mina podcast. Dr. Fulton is author of China's Relations with the Gulf Monarchies and co-editor of a recent volume entitled Asian Perceptions of Gulf Security. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, Jonathan.
1: Thanks for having me, Bonnie.
0: So maybe you can start by telling us about China's interests and objectives in the Middle East. What is China trying to achieve?
1: Okay, well, its primary interests in the Middle East are economic. Obviously, energy is a big part of that. China typically gets between 40 and 50 percent of its crude oil from the Middle East, mostly from the Gulf. Um, That's very important. And of course, it also gets a lot of LNG from the Gulf as well. It recently signed a 27-year agreement with Qatar. So a lot of its energy is coming from the Gulf. And of course, that's very important for China's economic performance domestically. You also see a lot of trade. China is among the top five sources of imports for almost, well, no, actually for every country in the Middle East. Uh, They do a lot of contracting. Recently, Arab countries have been embarking on these development projects, the Saudi Vision 2030, the New Kuwait 2035. These projects require a lot of foreign contracting, so Chinese SOEs have been especially active. So mostly China's interest in the region are economic. Um, Secondarily, of course, is the same reason that a lot of external countries have been engaged in the region forever, and that's the geography, the location. The Middle East connects really important markets and countries from South Asia to Africa to the Mediterranean. And of course, for the Belt and Road Initiative, that's a very important piece of real estate. So China's been actively involved there. And I think to a lesser extent... Over the past couple of years, as the China-U.S. relationship has been deteriorating somewhat, there's a geopolitical side as well. I think as strategic competition is the new framework for a lot of U.S. defense and foreign policy. And the Indo-Pacific is designated as the priority theater. For Beijing, I assume this is considered a threat as the U.S. starts to uh, engage more deeply in its region. And I think that means that the Middle East is an area where China can push back a little and maybe put the U.S. on its back foot.
0: So before we dig into the recent trip by Xi Jinping to Saudi Arabia, can you describe China's engagement in the Middle East over the past decade? Has the region itself become more important to China under Xi Jinping since he came to power, which of course he became the General Secretary of the Communist Party in November of 2012? Have the nature of China's engagements with the region changed in any way?
1: I don't think it's necessarily changed, I don't think you can pin it to Xi Jinping taking over the Communist Party. Of course, things have intensified since then, and I think that's primarily because the Belt and Road has become such an important part of China's foreign policy. But this is one of the issues I had with a lot of the media coverage of Xi's trip to Saudi. It it kind of framed everything in this short-term perspective, and it didn't look to the longer arc of what China's been doing in the region. So the first Chinese president to visit Saudi was Jiang Zemin in 1999, Hu Jintao went twice in the mid-2000s, and then she went again in 2016, like you said in your intro. So there's been a long arc of what's been happening, and each one of these visits has resulted in much deeper and more mature relations. That's been happening with a lot of countries in the region. Now, since 2012, 2013, and the BRI becoming such a big part of what China's doing, definitely there's been more of, a, I guess, a structure to what China's doing in the region, We saw in 2014, there was a very important – I should step back for a second. There's a a mechanism that China uses with Arab League countries called the China-Arab States Cooperation Forum. That was developed in 2004. And it's really interesting, again, to to look at how this trip was covered in the media – This China-Arab state summit was described as a novel thing, you know, the first China-Arab summit. And that was largely because that's how China framed it. But Wang Yi and his predecessor, Yang Jiechi, had been meeting with Arab state foreign ministers every two years for these ministerial meetings. And during these meetings, they would chart out the next two years of cooperation. So this meeting earlier this month wasn't really something new. It was part of a much longer type of engagement. And you could see in 2014, when the China-Arab States Cooperation Forum had the ministerial meeting, Xi Jinping gave the opening address and he announced this 1 plus 2 plus 3 cooperation framework, a way to engage with Arab League countries. And it laid out most of the stuff that we heard this week, or last week rather, with the renewable energy and trade and investment. A lot of what China emphasized during the Xi visit is stuff that they emphasized in 2014 and have been building towards for quite a while already.
0: So then let's dig into this trip itself. What do you think that Xi Jinping was trying to achieve with Saudi Arabia? And did his objectives align with those of the Saudis?
1: This is interesting because obviously from both countries, we're not going to get a very clear answer of what the trip was about. I hear a lot of rumors that this was the result of a Saudi request, that they wanted the Chinese to make a big visit to the kingdom, that this has been in the works since 2019. I've heard from other people saying that this is something the Chinese wanted. It's not really clear. But I think it makes sense. I mean, why Saudi? Obviously, you get a lot of bang for your buck. Like you mentioned in the intro, this was actually three summits rolled into one trip, which is a pretty good trip. There was the bilateral with the China-Saudis. And like you said, there were lots of MOUs, lots of big contracts. Another thing that was mentioned was this Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. Well, that was signed in 2016. What they did this time was they elevated it by building in this head of state visit that would happen every two years. But again, this wasn't something new. This is something that's been the backbone of the relationship since 2016. What else did you get? Well, the China Arab States Forum was not that big a deal, actually. Like when you look at it, they didn't get as many head of states as they expected. There weren't a lot of big outcomes that came from it. They set out eight areas of what they described as pragmatic cooperation, But these two were things that you could have seen in this 2014 2 plus 3 framework I mentioned. And then there was the GCC summit. And this also didn't really tell us anything new. So what did China get out of it? Well, I think probably what they got was the PRC's been having a hard time with a lot of its uh, most, uh, you know, the countries that it does the most trade investment with. You know, If you look at how China's been perceived in the US, Europe, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada over the past few years, it hasn't been good. You have seen a a lot of outreach towards the global south, the developing world, and I think this feeds into that. I think China can say, look, sure, Western liberals, you know, they don't like us because we're not following the rules they're setting. A lot of other countries respect us and and put on a, a lavish reception when we come to town. I think that's good for China. I think for the Saudis, I think there's a similar dynamic. They've been having a hard time in their relationship with the U.S. especially, but a lot of European countries as well they can say, look, here's our number one trading partner, and they show us the respect to come and meet with all of our neighbors in Riyadh. So I think the domestic audiences probably look at this and think, look, this shows that our countries are, are, are doing okay, our government's on track.
0: You talked earlier about how economics is central in Beijing's approach to Saudi Arabia. But of course, I think security is becoming increasingly important in China's foreign policy overall. So how do you think that the Chinese see the role of security in their relationships with Middle Eastern countries? This is the big money
1: question. This is something that always comes up, and I think a reason why it comes up is primarily because the U.S.-China relationship is the strategic competition rivalry, frames it pretty neatly. The U.S. is the security provider of most countries in the Gulf, except Iran, of course, And they have very deep, long-standing relations. They've got defense cooperation agreements with uh, four of the GCC countries. They've got a facilities access agreement with Oman. And because there's been this narrative in the region for quite a while that the U.S. is looking to pivot out of the Gulf and into Asia, which is how the pivot is kind of interpreted in the region, despite all evidence to the contrary, you know, it creates this, this, again, this, this binary. The U.S. is leaving. China is doing all these big deals. It must be coming in. I've seen no evidence to indicate that's true by any stretch. I mean, so when China talks about Middle East security, they always, always use the securities development narrative, saying insecurity is a result of underdevelopment. If the Middle East is able to solve its development problems then there's going to be more security. People aren't going to turn to terrorist organizations or or rebel against the state. You're not going to have uh, color revolutions or whatever. So what China says is we'll provide security or we'll support your security ambitions by providing development, trade, digital technologies that help the governments uh, build up the state capacity, things like this. And I think that's really how China sees its role security-wise. With the Saudis, there have been nascent steps towards Building on a more traditional focus. This goes back again to this 2016 meeting when um, Xi Jinping went to Saudi and they created this comprehensive strategic partnership. And they talked about traditional security cooperation, things like counterterrorism or joint training activities. And they started to actualize that pretty early on. There were counter training activities between the Chinese military and the Saudi military, there were naval drills. But this stuff is still pretty small scale compared to what the Saudis get with the US. There's just absolutely no expectation that China could anytime soon play a similar security role, even if it were inclined to do that. It doesn't have the connective tissue of bases across the Indian Ocean region that the U.S. has. It doesn't have traditional alliance partnerships or relationships. So it's got a pretty minimal security relationship with most countries in the region.
0: So I wanted to ask you about multilateral institutions. Saudi Arabia and Egypt have reportedly expressed interest in joining BRICS, which of course is composed of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And many Gulf states are current or prospective dialogue partners of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is expanding. So how are multilateral institutions changing relationships between China and the Gulf states? And what role are they playing?
1: Well, I'm a BRICS skeptic. You know, it seems to me more an acronym than a, you know, useful organization. I I just don't see how these countries any kind of coherent block I know there's been you know the BRICS Development Bank and they 've been having regular meetings, but it just seems i don 't know it just it doesn't seem to, to be very tangible to me, but the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is very interesting because you can see there's a lot that could animate deeper uh, engagement from Middle Eastern countries, especially since the u s withdrew from Afghanistan. Uh, I think that really changed the dynamics quite a bit. You know Iran has been trying to join the SEO since two thousand and eight. And it w- the, the SEO had a, a really simple mechanism to prevent that. They said, if you're uh, under sanctions from the UN, you can't join. And I think that certainly uh, played into China's benefit. I don't think China was too excited to have Iran join it because I think China was quite worried about the perception of the SEO as a as a anti-Western bloc of authoritarian states. And bringing Iran in would have certainly cemented that reputation. So I think China was happy to keep Iran at arm's length as an observer state for as long as they could. I think Russia was a little more keen to have the Iranians join. And when India and Pakistan joined in uh, 2017, I believe, I was really curious about that. Because it seems that was the first significant expansion of the SEO. And it kind of opened the door to Iran joining. And my thinking was if Iran joined then I would expect to see its neighbors also try to get in as well, that this would create a, a security dynamic where GCC countries would feel threatened by Iran having a, a close security relationship with its major trading partner, China and India and, and these other in Pakistan and these other countries that they cooperate a lot on energy issues. And that's what we saw happen. When Iran, when it was announced in the summit in 2021 that Iran had a path to membership, we saw a lot of GCC countries in Egypt say, we want in two. That is, I think, uh, has the potential to be very, very interesting. You know, a lot of these, a couple of the GCC countries are non-NATO partners. The prospect of NATO, our allies or partners working with or joining the SCO, I think would certainly change how the U.S. looks at the SCO. Uh, It makes me think there's a ceiling to what the GCC countries are willing to do with it, but I think they also would like to have some kind of influence in an organization with Iran cooperating with Russia, China, India, and Pakistan.
0: One of the agreements that Saudi Arabia has signed with China is with its large tech giant Huawei And recently, apparently, some Gulf states have also entered into smart city agreements with China. And we know that the Chinese have been exporting this technology in many places around the world. But in some countries, there's been resistance, including the United States and some countries in Europe. Is the Middle East, and particularly Saudi Arabia, a welcoming market for Huawei technology? Are there any concerns in the Middle East about collection of data, about surveillance, any of these concerns that we see in some of the European countries and in the United States?
1: Yeah, Chinese tech companies have made pretty good gains in the region. And a lot of that, like I said, if you if you go back to this 2014 1 plus 2 plus 3 cooperation framework in the three cooperation on technology and digital cooperation was a big part of it. And you saw before then, but especially after that point, you saw Huawei start to make pretty significant gains in the region, cooperating with a lot of countries like the Saudis, Algeria, the UAE, Kuwait. I mean, a lot of these countries look at technological solutions to their development issues or labor pressures or, or any number of, of problems as being crucial to state development and when they look at china i mean like all of us who have visited china in the past 10 years and you see how uh, smoothly everything runs technologically and how advanced it is in a lot of ways i think when they look at china they think we want to be able to achieve what it's achieved in those domains so with the saudis for example they've been working with huawei on ai and smart city technology to manage things like crowd control during hajj you know pilgrimage when all these muslims visit saudi to perform their pilgrimage you get a situation where the country has you know millions and millions of people arriving all at once, and you've got a potential security problem. Not because you're worried about violence, but you're worried about how do you manage crowd control, how do you get uh, first responders to to people who might you know get hurt or fall ill or whatever. So they've been working on this stuff for quite a while. I think it wasn't really until about 2018 when the U.S. started to push back a bit, you know, after the 2017 national security strategy document came out, talked about China as a a strategic or great power competitor. That's when we saw the Trump administration start to talk to regional allies and partners about the threats of using Huawei or other Chinese tech. And I don't think many countries here have really accepted that narrative yet. I think a lot of countries think of working with China as an opportunity in this Uh, You know, I I have been giving the example recently of the UAE where I live. About 90% of the UAE is expatriate. I don't know exactly what the number is because there hasn't been a census for quite a while, but it's around 90%. And a lot of the productive workforce comprises that 90%. That's a vulnerability, right? To be reliant on so many expats is, is not something that would make anybody very comfortable when Chinese companies come and say, "Look, we can use digital solutions to address some of your labor issues. You don't have to hire so many people. we can use AI or we can use these digital programs to address your labor shortages. I think that's something that a lot of countries consider very, very useful so it's it's strange because you know for for those of us who are from you know Western countries, liberal democratic countries, and we hear about how China uses tech and AI in Xinjiang, for example, uh, we think well, this is this is very threatening and and uh, makes it very uncomfortable, justifiably so. Countries here are seeing the other side of it, saying, look, we can use this AI and and this uh, smart city technology to address a lot of really important issues for us. And I don't think they have the same concerns that the US, the EU, or or other Western liberal countries would have.
0: Well, you mentioned Xinjiang, so I want to ask you a question that people ask me all the time, and that is that Muslim-majority states seem to be the least vocal about some of the human rights violations that are taking place in Xinjiang. And of course, uh, a few months ago, we had the UN report that was finally released, which said that there may be crimes against humanity being committed in Xinjiang. There's been a lot of growing evidence over the last few years. And yet, really, you hear it's mostly Western countries that are raising these concerns with China. So is that accurate that most countries in the Middle East don't pay attention to this issue, or is there a difference maybe between publics and governments?
1: Yeah. So this is always, this one comes up a lot, as I'm sure you can imagine. It's, you know, it'd probably be better if you had somebody, you know, a a Gulf Arab Muslim person to answer this question, but not too many of them would want to publicly, I don't imagine. So there's a few dynamics here. One is that, as you point out, there is a difference between publics and governments on this issue and on many others. A lot of the media in the Middle East is government-owned or state-owned, and that means that the stories that people are reading or watching on the news are ones that the state is sanctioning. This story doesn't appear much. Here in the UAE, I've read very few stories about Xinjiang. I teach at a university in the UAE. My students are international relations majors or international studies majors. Some of them will come to me and ask me about this because they're the ones who are reading a lot of international news. But most students don't seem to know much about it, if anything, about it. Now, why that's the case, I think there's probably, that's the interesting part. For one thing, if you look at the major security threats across most countries in the Middle East, most states would say their biggest threats are coming domestically. You know, challenges to state power. And often that's in the form of transnational ideological groups. And a lot of them over the past 20, 30 years have been Islamist groups. The Muslim Brotherhood, for example, is one that a lot of countries in the Gulf feel is particularly threatening. Now, when China talks about Xinjiang to Middle Eastern governments, I think what they often describe is we're dealing with radical ideology that's rooted in political Islam that's telling these Uyghur people, uh, Muslim people, to challenge state authority and, and create an independent country. And of course, if you frame it that way and say, this isn't us, you know, treating Muslims badly, and instead say, this is us dealing with a group that's trying to challenge state authority, and this based on political Islamist ideology, that's something that resonates across the region. So I think there's, you know, that's one reason why that might be uh, the case that you don't many Middle Eastern governments pushing against this narrative, because I think that they probably are in agreement to a degree, maybe not about the means that they achieve it, but the concerns that they have. You also see other factors like the fact that the Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic group. Turkey is seen as a problematic actor in the region. There's been this competition with Sunni countries in the Middle East for you know, kind of like uh, to establish a dominant position in the region. And Turkey's on one side of that and the Saudis are on another. So I think this becomes uh, something that certain governments can use to punish the Turkish with, to say, look, this is something that Turkey should be handling. Why, why are you asking us? Go ask them. And I think the last point about this that I would think is it's it's far away, right? This is something that people here in the region, they have very serious security or stability issues, right here at home. And when they look at something that's happening far away, they think this doesn't affect us, it doesn't make our countries work any better or worse if we take a stand on something that's happening in China. But it will make things worse for us if we start criticizing China about this, and then China treats us like they treated, for example, uh, you know, South Korea during the THAAD crisis, or the way they uh, treated Norway after Liu Xiaobo won the Nobel Peace Prize. They haven't been on the sharp end of Chinese economic statecraft in the region, and I don't think anybody wants that. So, you know, taking us down on that issue is a no-win for everybody, I think. So, so why do it?
0: Hmm. All good points. Interesting. Some observers have argued that China's stronger ties with Saudi Arabia will reduce Beijing's need to cultivate a deeper partnership with Iran. And I wonder if you agree with that. China's economic relations with Iran – obviously have been negatively affected by U.S. sanctions, but China's economic relations with Iran have also been negatively affected. So what do you see as the future trajectory of China's relationship with Iran?
1: Banya, I love the way you frame that question, because when I started writing about this issue back in, say, 2017, that was kind of how I was looking at it. I'd look at the data and think China's doing so much more business on the Arab side of the Gulf. They have a huge expatriate population on the side of the Gulf. They're doing a lot of contracting. Their investments are here. But everybody seemed to think that the China-Iran relationship was the strategic one and the China-GCC one was opportunism. And I, I just never understood that. And I think part of the reason was that you know the Gulf countries, the GCC countries are U.S. allies or partners. And Iran is, you know, kind of a revisionist power that threatens them and and rejects U.S. leadership in the region. And that kind of feeds into this idea that China and Iran are working together to, you know, usurp America. It just didn't make any sense to me. China's overwhelming interests in the region, as I said earlier, are economic. And that means they prize stability more than anything else. They're not here as ideological actors trying to destabilize governments. They want a stable Gulf environment so they can get that energy that they need and they can do business. And Iran doesn't contribute to that. Iran is a a problematic actor in the region. You could see when the Saudi Aramco was attacked in 2019 by somebody, you know, it it was never really announced too, but we all know it was Iran or one of its proxies. The Saudi Aramco facility in Apkeek was offline for a couple of days and the price of oil shot up. And for that period, China was spending $97 million a day extra to get the same amount of oil because the price shot up so much. That was because Iran threatened China's economic interests in the region. And I can't imagine anybody in Beijing wouldn't have called anybody in Tehran and said, what are you doing? Do you think you're that special to me that I'm willing to spend $100 million a day to be your friend? You know, I'm not going to support you if you're going to keep doing this stuff that threatens my interests. I think the Saudi-Iran relationship has always been very fair weather, and there hasn't been much fair weather for the Iranians for quite a while. China's often thrown Iran under the bus when it suited them the Iranians know this better than anybody. And if you look at what China has been doing with the GCC countries, I think the Gulf country has been very smart to incentivize China to work more closely with them. You know, when Iran went under the latest round of sanctions, uh, I think in 2019, at that point, Iran was supplying China with something like 6% of its crude. And, you know, to lose 6% of your source of energy when you're a country like China is a big problem. Well, the Saudis just said, you know what, we'll just Turn the tap up, and we'll sell more to you. We can cover it, you know. So to have a country that can cover six percent that effortlessly, I think is, is really attractive. You can see in the UAE, you know, always creating these free trade zones or or areas for Chinese companies to come in and invest and build a, a huge presence in a port that connects you to all these other ports around the region. The GCC countries are a much more natural partner for China in achieving its regional interests. And the last point I'd make is that those countries in the GCC are also U.S. allies or partners, which makes them very, very comfortable to work with because you don't have the same kind of stability concerns that you would have in working with countries that have bad relations with the U.S.
0: So finally, let me ask you about China's role in conflicts in the Middle East. Beijing has really shied away from getting involved in something like, for example, the Arab-Israeli conflict and Palestine-related issues. Recently, the leader of Yemen's Presidential Leadership Council reportedly attended the Arab-China summit on Xi Jinping's last day in Saudi Arabia. And he pushed for aid from China to help end the Yemen conflict. So is China looking to play a role in that conflict? Do you think that China, as it becomes maybe more involved in the Middle East, strengthens its relations, that it might get pulled into some of these conflicts?
1: No, I don't think so. I think China's been watching very closely at, uh, you know, decades, if not centuries, of extra-regional powers playing... A much too big role in Middle Eastern conflicts or Middle Eastern security issues, and it never ends well. And I think they've probably taken that lesson to heart. What you see is a lot of rhetorical support, say things like, you know, we we have a, a four point plan or a five point plan or however many point plan for you know Persian Gulf security or solution to the Arab Israeli conflict or whatever and it never works and a big reason is because in the region China is not seen as the country that can solve these problems you know it's it's an outsider and it's an outsider that doesn't have a deep history here it doesn't have the personnel to to delve deeply into this if you look at the US government you'll find in state or the DOD or the national security council or any number of agencies just an incredibly deep team of middle east experts who have very long standing relationships with leaders across the region you don't find that to the same extent in China because it hasn't been a very important actor here for very long. So I don't think anybody, when thinking about, you know, the Arab-Israeli conflict or the war in Yemen or Syria, I don't think anybody in the region is saying, you know, what will Beijing do to solve this? Because nobody has that kind of uh, relationship with China yet. And I don't think that's something we can expect to see anytime soon. I don't think China wants to develop that. I think you could see any number of quotes from Wang Yi, over the past year where he will say things like, the Middle East doesn't need foreign patriarchy, the Middle East should be run by the people of the Middle East, we'll support you in this. I think that tells us how China sees the region as someplace where foreigners should butt out, let local actors solve their own problems, but I don't think that means China sees itself as playing a significant role in taking that on. I think they would you know, give support in the United Nations or convene people in Beijing perhaps, but I don't see China as certainly playing a major role in any of those
0: issues. We've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Fulton, who is an assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi. And he's also a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jonathan. Thank you, Bonnie.